We're going to be in Acts 25 and 26. Yes, you heard that right. We are covering two chapters this morning. I think this was Pastor Ryan's parting gift before he comes back from sabbatical tomorrow. So I don't know if you heard or smelled, there's new coffee uh, brewing back there. If you need an extra refill to get through, you might want to go do that right about now. It's my goal this morning, though, that, um, that this passage that we're going to look at this morning will be an encouragement. Remember where we left off last week in Acts chapter 24. Paul is left in jail and has been in jail for two years now, where we pick up in Acts 25 and 26. Two years have passed. Now, it's my goal that this sermon won't feel like two years or take that long. But what I want you to do is I want you to just take a moment. I want you to think about what were you doing two years ago? Let's get a little bit of perspective of what's going on with Paul. Now think about what was going on two years ago. Two years ago, it was the summer of 2020. It was the summer of COVID. And in case you have forgotten or tried not to remember what the summer of 2020 was like, let me give you a few reminders of what was like here at church two years ago. Um, You were going to one of three services. You were either going to the 8 o'clock, the 9.30, or the 11 o'clock service. And when you came, you were sitting in cluster groups of chairs. Remember we had cluster groups of two, four, six, and even eight, and you were sitting in a cluster. We had about 120 chairs in here. We had chairs in in the foyer as well, and that's where you were sitting. And when the service was over, do you remember this? We would dismiss you by sections. Like we would dismiss you one section at a time. And what we would instruct you to do is to go down the hallway and out the the nursery hallway and out the nursery doors and to fellowship outside because that was the safer thing to do, right? And that was also to to, um, have you all like out of here so that we could, we were sanitizing and spraying down all of the chairs, wiping down all the bathroom handles, making sure everything was sanitized before the next uh, service. There was no, there was no coffee. Uh, there was no SBS or WANA or youth group. So that was church. And I'm glad that in some ways that seems like a really long time ago, doesn't it? Like, that almost seems like a lifetime ago. And, and I'm glad that, that things are, are, are really back to normal. But church wasn't the only thing that was different, right? I mean, school was different, too. I mean, kids, you were getting ready to go back to school after the longest summer break ever, right? I mean, school was basically out from March until August. And kids are getting ready back to school. I remember Jonah was still in elementary school. And I remember um, he was at Howard Elementary. He was in fourth grade. And instead of an open house, what they did was they did a drive-by open house. We, I remember driving down 3rd Street, and we stopped where the fourth grade teachers were. And we met uh, Jonah's teacher that way. And it, just was, it was just different, right? It was just different. But that wasn't the only thing that was different, right? I mean, there were no restaurants open. I mean, the only way that you could get food from a restaurant was either drive-through or carry-out. There were no movies showing in any movie theaters, unless you went to the drive-in. There were no sporting events that you could attend in person. I remember watching, uh, you know, the Huskers and the Chiefs and seeing these empty stadiums and just think, this is just so weird. There were no concerts to go to. I mean, a lot can happen in two years, right? A lot has changed in two years. I mean, for us, Joel was getting ready to start his junior year in high school, and Friday, we're getting ready to take him off to college. A lot can happen in two 
years. And I'm sure that you can think about in your own life and all the things that has taken place for you in the last two years and the things that have happened. A lot can change in two years. So I wanted to have that mindset to be thinking about because this idea of Paul, when we pick up in Acts chapter 25, has been sitting in jail for two years. That's what's taking place for him in the last two years. Now, I know that covering two chapters may feel like a lot of ground that we have to cover this morning, but I believe that there is one theme that is weaving its way through our passage this morning, and that theme is the theme of hope. I believe that hope is the thread that weaves its way through these two chapters this morning. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to break these two chapters into four sections. I'm not going to read these two chapters all at once. We're going to break it up, and we're going to look at it one section at a time. And what we're going to do is we're going to see what is the Lord doing in Paul and his life in these two chapters and to see hopefully that thread of hope weave its way through. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to, be, we're going to look in chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to ask you to stand for every section. Maybe that would be good, though, to keep the blood flowing. But I'm only going to ask you to stand this one time as I read verses 1 through 12. So if you could stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem to Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me if there's anything wrong about the man. Let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am wrong, a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up on them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had confirmed with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. You may be seated. Now here's the interesting thing. During these two years that Paul is in prison, we really don't know anything that he did. I was doing research this past week, hoping to find out, like, did Paul write some of his letters during this two-year time period? You know, he had these prison epistles that he wrote. Was this it? And the answer is no. Those are written later when he's in prison in Rome that he wrote all those letters. So we really don't know anything that Paul did during these two years, except wait. 
You know, it does say in chapter 24 and verse 26 that the Roman governor of the region, Felix, sent for Paul often and conversed with him. But that's all we know about Paul's two years here. Here he is, innocent, sitting in jail cell and waiting. Which I think is something to, for us to think about this morning, right? There's going to be seasons of life where the Lord is going to ask you to wait. And those seasons can be long and they can be hard. Maybe you've had a long season of waiting like Paul where it's been two years. Or maybe it's even been more than that. But here's the thing. God is always doing something in the waiting. And God call for us to wait. It's always intentional. There's always purpose and design in the waiting. And what we're called to do is to be patient, to look to the Lord and trust in Him and rest in Him in our season of waiting. Because what we're going to do is we see these two chapters unfold. There is a reason for the waiting for Paul. And what's also encouraging is what we're going to see is, is that waiting has not deterred Paul either. We see in chapter 25 in verse 1 that there is a new Roman governor in the land, and his name is Festus. Festus has replaced Felix. We also see in verse 3 that two years later, the Jewish leaders have not forgotten about Paul being in jail. Matter of fact, they still have an axe to grind against Paul, don't they? Because they are still wanting to plot a way that they can assassinate him by getting him to come back from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where they want to ambush him and kill him. Which shows us, I think, the intensity of the anger of the Jewish people towards Paul. That even though he's been sitting in jail for two years, that is still not good enough for them. They still want Paul dead. I mean, can you imagine someone being so upset with you that two years later they still want you dead? And yet this shows that, you know, not everyone loves the gospel message. The gospel message does bring opposition. But Festus says no to this request of the Jews of having Paul being brought to Jerusalem. And he tells the Jews and said, no, you can come to Caesarea and make your case there against Paul. I mean, Festus easily could have said yes to the Jews' request and brought Paul up to Jerusalem, but he didn't. Which I believe shows God's sovereign provision and protection for Paul. Remember we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus told Paul that he was going to proclaim Christ in Rome. And here I believe we see that the Lord is protecting Paul by having Festus not go along with the request of the Jews. Which I think is a really good reminder for us this morning that the Lord is always moving on behalf of his people, even when we don't see it or can recognize it or even know it. I mean, Paul had no idea what was happening in, in Jerusalem with Festus and the Jews while he's sitting in a jail cell in Jerusalem, right? And yet the Lord is moving, the Lord is working on Paul's behalf. God works in all sorts of unique and interesting ways and in all sorts of people, even people like Festus. And the Lord is working on behalf of his people as well. And this is a good reminder for us that we should trust the Lord even when it doesn't seem obvious to us to see what he is doing and what he's working. 
But there is always hope in God's sovereignty for God's people. So Festus returns to Caesarea and the Jewish leaders accompany him. The Jewish leader bring their charges against Paul. Charges that are not true, that they can't even prove to Festus. Paul makes his defense to Festus, proclaims his innocence. And Festus, though, being the new Roman governor in town, wants to earn the approval and favor of the Jewish crowd. And so he asks Paul to say, hey, now do you want to come to Jerusalem and make your defense? Now, Paul doesn't like this idea at all because Paul realizes the risk and the danger that this puts him in. That to go back to Jerusalem, to be in front of a Jewish crowd once again, does not bode well for Paul. Paul knows that he will not get justice if he were to return to Jerusalem. So what Paul does is he has to take matter into his own hands and he makes this appeal to Caesar, which is a right that Paul has because of his Roman citizenship. So Paul takes things to the next level with this uh, legal move that he makes and takes the matter out of Felix's hand, or Festus's hands. So what this does is not only does it keep Paul from going back to Jerusalem, it also keeps Paul headed towards Rome. And that leads us to our next uh, passage here, and that is the rest of chapter 25, which is the verses 13 through 27. Follow along with me in your Bible, or it'll be on the screen here as well. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charges in his case such of such evils as I supposed. But rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go, uh, go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul... Uh, appealed, appealed to be uh, kept in custody for the decision of the emperor. I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, see you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. 
but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So it's in this section that we get introduced to a new person to uh, our story here, the, Jer- uh, the Jewish king Agrippa. Agrippa. Agrippa is given this title of king by the Roman emperor. He's more of a puppet king. Uh, and Agrippa has quite a family tree, if you don't know this. Agrippa's dad is King Herod that we read about in Acts chapter 12, who had the apostle uh, James killed with a sword. And he's also the one in Acts chapter 12 who is struck down by an angel of the Lord. Agrippa's grandfather is King Herod the Tetrarch of Matthew chapter 14, who had John the Baptist beheaded. And Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who tried to have Jesus killed when he'd heard that he had been born and had all the babies in the area, the baby boys in the area, two years and younger, to be killed. That is quite the family tree that Agrippa comes from. And this is who is now here in Acts chapter 25 to pay his respects to Festus, who is the new uh, governor in town. And while Agrippa is visiting with Festus, the topic of Paul happens to come up. Festus recounts this unusual story of Paul with Agrippa and his struggle of to know what to do with Paul. But what I want you to notice is there's an important detail about Paul that stands out to Festus that we read in verse 19. Look at it again with me, where it says, Rather, they had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. One of the big takeaways about Paul for Festus is Jesus. Obviously, the Jews bring this charge against Paul, and one of those charges is about Jesus. And this is stuck out in Festus' mind. This is one of the details that he shares with Agrippa, this idea that Jesus is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is something that it says Paul still is asserting to. This is something that Paul is still holding to. That two years of sitting in jail has not stopped Paul from speaking the message of salvation that is found in Jesus. Paul's central message two years later is still to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's mind has not been changed because he's been in prison. He's not cynical or disillusioned or struggling with Jesus because of being in prison. Jesus is still Paul's hope. So Festus' story about uh, Paul to Agrippa has has, um, Agrippa curious about Paul, and he wants to hear from Paul himself, which happens the very next day. Verse 23, we see that Agrippa and his sister Bernice enter the audience hall with great pomp and circumstance. You get the sense of the royalty of what is going on here, that all the military tribunes and all the prominent men of the city have come and entered in. It's a very regal and showy entrance that they have made. Makes them look very powerful and important. 
distinguished and impressive. Then at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in as a prisoner. No fanfare spectacle in Paul. I mean, it's a contrasting scene to look at in that verse there. You get the sense that Agrippa is ruling and has great power and might and authority, and Paul is bound, comes in insignificant and alone. Yet Paul, even though it appears that in this moment he has nothing, yet we know that Paul has everything, even in this condition that he is in, because he has Jesus. And Agrippa, who appears to have everything, yet without Jesus, really has nothing. And we see in verses 24 through 26 that Festus sees that Paul is innocent. That even though that Paul is headed to Rome, that Festus has no clue what to write about Paul. He sees he's innocent. He knows that he's appealed to Caesar, but he's like, I don't even know what he's appealing about. Because I have no charges to bring against him. And then what we see here, though, but Paul is headed to Rome anyway because of his appeal. And in chapter 26, what we see is Paul is going to make his long defense before Agrippa. Paul recognizes that this crowd that he is speaking to is not the usual Jewish crowd that he speaks to, that he's normally in front of. He sees this crowd. So what we find in this message of what Paul does here, that he speaks in a different way. He speaks in a very formal way. Yet the message is still the same that we're going to see. And what I think is interesting is this crowd that Paul is standing in front of is two years in the making. Paul's waited two years to stand in front of this crowd and make this defense in front of this group of people. So let's read this. What we're going to read first is in verses 1 through 11, where Paul speaks of his life before Christ, where he says this. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem, not only locking up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I find it amazing that over and over and over again, Paul has no problem talking about his life 
before he met Christ. Paul has shared his testimony several times in the book of Acts already, as we've seen as we've gone through this book. And every time Paul talks about his life before Christ, he does it in Galatians and Philippians and and 1 Timothy, where he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Paul has no problem talking about his past, how he was violent to the church, how he was raging fury against the church and tried to destroy the church. He was there when Stephen died and approved of it. And Paul doesn't hide from his past. As a matter of fact, it seems that he embraces his past. And he does this so that the power of the gospel would be on full display in his life. Paul wants everyone to see the hope of Jesus and the gift of salvation that he brings to be seen as mighty and powerful. That the gospel has the power to overcome any obstacle in anybody's life. Now, I know there are some people that don't like to talk about their past because they're too ashamed of it all. But here's the thing. I don't think Paul's ashamed of his past. He's not ashamed to talk about his past because Paul wants to highlight how radically the work of Jesus was to turn his life around. Paul wants people to see that there is great power in the saving work of Jesus for the foremost of sinners. And Paul wants to magnify the greatness of Jesus and wants everyone to know about it. It is this gospel message of Jesus that Paul places all his hope in now. Look again at verses 6 through 8 with me and see how Paul talks about this hope, right? He says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it not incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? When Paul is talking about this hope, he is saying that this hope is in Jesus. Jesus is the reason that the Jews are putting Paul on trial. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the hope of this resurrection that Paul is talking about. And Paul makes this clear connection of Jesus being that hope further down here in verses 22 through 23. I know we haven't read these verses yet, but I want you to look at them now because Paul makes the connection here where he says this, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is saying that the promises of God that are mentioned in the prophets and Moses and what they wrote about in the Old Testament have all come to pass. They've all come true in the person and work of Jesus. It's here that Paul is making this connection to this hope being Jesus. The promises of God were fulfilled when Jesus is the one who suffered and died on the cross and was raised from the dead, giving light to all people, not only to Jewish people, but Gentile people as well. And it is this great, bright hope that is found in Jesus that informed everything in Paul's life. 
And it is a great, bright hope for Paul, not only when things are going good, but when things are going bad as well. It is this great hope that kept Paul going while he was sitting in jail. Two years later, he's still putting his hope in Jesus. Paul's hope in Jesus will not be quenched or extinguished even when he sits in a jail cell for two years. Paul is not disappointed in Jesus because of the way his life is going right now. And can I tell you, I've been, I've been in ministry over 23 years now. And in those 23 years, I've seen a lot of people walk away from God. And the primary reason that I see them walk away from God is because they are disappointed with God. God didn't come through the way they thought he should come through, so they walk away. And there's nothing that makes me more sad than to see that happen. People who have lost hope in God. And yet, here's Paul, right? Just think of everything that he's gone through up to this point in Acts. Or just even on his road to Rome, right? What have we seen? We've seen him beaten and almost killed. We've seen two threats of assassination against him. We see all the Jewish people against him, yelling against him, opposing him, wanting to see him dead. Jail time for no reason. And yet he is still firmly placing his hope in Jesus. Because what Paul is able to see is that he has found a hope in Jesus that is so great that there's no disappointment in life that can defeat this hope for him. Paul is able to see that the hope in Jesus is never going to fail him and is never going to let him down because he sees that the hope of salvation and eternal life are what Jesus promises. That even though life may be hard, and it was very hard for Paul, make no mistake, life was hard for Paul. But he knew that there was a better eternal life that was promised to him. And nothing was going to take away that hope from Paul. And then we come to our, our last section where we're going to read the last of chapter 26 this morning where Paul tells of his conversion. Starting in verse 12, read with me here. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you for, from your people and from the Gentiles, whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, 
but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have held the hope that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. To, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So not only does Paul tell of his conversion uh, to Jesus, but he also tells of the commission that was given to him by Jesus. Verses 17 and 18, we see that Paul is told um, to go to the Gentiles so that their eyes would be open, that we would turn from darkness and the power of Satan to light and the power of God, that they would receive forgiveness of their sins, and that they would have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. This is the power and the hope of the gospel, that Jesus is the one who opens spiritually blind eyes to see the light and the good news of Christ and to receive forgiveness of sins from Jesus. But not only that, but also to see that Jesus works their salvation all the way through to the end. Because notice it says there that those who are sanctified are done so by faith in him. Our being sanctified, which means our being made holy, is also by faith, which means trusting in the power of Jesus to continue to do that sanctifying work in us. In other words, it is the power of Jesus that enables us to do the work to look more like Jesus. Just as we are saved by faith, trusting in Jesus and trusting in his work on our behalf, so we are sanctified by faith and trusting in Jesus as well. Our holiness comes from Jesus. That's why Jesus lived that perfect life, because it was credited as righteousness to us. So what this means is that all of our saving work from start to finish, from day one from, to the very last day, from beginning to end, is all done by Jesus working in you. And this is our great hope to know that Jesus always does the work. And this saving work of Jesus we see is for everybody. 
He says over and over again that this message of Jesus is for Jews and Gentiles. It's for insiders and outsiders. The message of Jesus is for all nationalities. The message of Jesus is for all social classes. The message of Jesus is for the well-educated, the uneducated. The message of Jesus is for everyone. And Paul says that this salvation message is even for one like King Agrippa. That's his request. That is what Paul wants to see happen, what he says in verse 29, where Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. Paul wants Agrippa to be like Jesus in every way except for being in jail. I mean, think about this. Agrippa's not a good guy. And yet Paul says, Agrippa, I want you to know Jesus. He wants everybody there who is listening to know Jesus. And what Paul does, he looks beyond all of these things. He looks beyond all of the heathen things that takes place by these Romans. And he sees that Agrippa and everybody else there needs Jesus. And Paul wants Agrippa to come and know Jesus as his great Savior and his great hope. And this is what happens when you find your great hope to be in Jesus, is what you want is you want others to know this great hope of Jesus as well. And our passage ends with Paul Paul finally being shipped off to uh, Rome to appeal to Caesar, even though both Agrippa and Festus know that Paul is innocent of the charges that have been brought against him. So the hope of the good news of Jesus affects Paul in almost every area in his life that we've seen here this morning. This hope is what saw Paul through two years of jail time for something that he did not do. And this hope worked in Paul so no bitterness or resentment was built in him. This hope came out so strongly that Festus could clearly see that the death and resurrection of Jesus is what was most central and important to Paul. This hope of Paul is what Paul is being accused of by the Jews and it's a hope that Paul is firmly standing in, and he will not recant or bend no matter how much the pressure builds on him. It is a hope that has radically turned Paul's life around from one who wanted to snuff out the church to one who wants to build up the church. It is a hope that Paul wants to proclaim both to Jews and to Gentiles, Jews who want to kill him and heathen Romans. And it is a hope that Paul continues to proclaim, even when it seems everybody around him rejects this hope. I mean, just think about what we've seen over the, next se over the last several weeks, all the people that Paul has given his testimony and has proclaimed the gospel to, to all the Jews in Jerusalem and the religious leaders, to the Roman tribune in Jerusalem, to Felix, to Festus, to Agrippa and Bernice, and all these people here, right? And Acts doesn't tell us that any of them come to trust in Christ. Church history does not tell us that Felix or Festus or Agrippa or Bernice, that none of them trust in Christ. Now, we know that there may be some in the crowd who did trust in Christ, and that'll be a great thing to see in heaven one day, is to see the effect of all of Paul's preaching here. Agrippa says he's close to believing in verse 28, but it's hard to know if he's being serious or sarcastic in this moment with Paul. But all this rejection does not stop Paul from sharing Jesus. I mean, Paul is even willing to give up his freedom in order to go to Rome 
and share this hope of Jesus there. We can see that the hope of Jesus is the motivation and foundation for everything in Paul's life. And it's a hope that has seen Paul through in every situation of life. Notice what it says in chapter 26 and verse 22 there, where he says, to this day, which really means every moment up until this day, Paul has had help that comes from God. Paul sees that God has been with him, helping him every step of the way. So the question this morning is, how does the hope of Christ affect you in the situation that you find yourself in? Are you waiting on the Lord right now? Are you in a hard time of suffering? Can I encourage you to hang in there and don't give up on the hope that is found in Jesus? He is working. He is faithful. He keeps his promises. In my devotion time last week, I'm reading through the book of, of Joshua. And I read Joshua uh, 21, verse 45. Uh, it's one of my favorite verses where it says this, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. I love it. It doesn't just say all the promises came to pass. I love it that said not one word failed. All of them came to pass. That is awesome. And that's meant to be a great encouragement to us that not a single word of the Lord will fail for his people. God will see you through and it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Salvation, resurrection, eternal life, it will be worth it. Paul's journey to Rome is not done yet, right? There's still a lot of hardship waiting. We're going to see it next week in chapter 27. But the one thing that will meet Paul in every hardship is the hope of Jesus. And that is the one thing that is guaranteed to meet you at every hardship that you see as well is the hope of Jesus. It's a hope that will not disappoint. It's hope that will not fail. So let's keep looking to this great hope that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we've covered a lot of ground here in Acts 25 and 26 this morning. And I pray that you would help us to see, and not just to see, but to believe, to know, to have confidence in the hope that is found in Jesus. That no matter what situation or season of life that we are in, the one thing that we know that will see us through to the end is the hope of of Jesus. So I pray that we would find great encouragement in that this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for hanging in there this morning.